Patch Patch. Hello. 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 Hi. Good evening. Or good afternoon. Good morning, possibly. I know, Adric. I know. It all depends when you're listening to this. That's why I cover them all. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good day, sir. Welcome to That's Great, Adric. The Doctor Who Podcast. Hosted by me, Shawnee Wong Kenobi, and that is me, with my co-host, Adric, sitting quietly in the corner, not making eye contact again, and we're working on that, we're working on making eye contact, at least making eye contact when you are speaking to someone, but he's not talking right now, he's just there with his Game Boy. Daisy's with us again tonight, but she's sleeping. And you know what they say about letting sleeping dogs lie. Let sleeping dogs lie. That's what they say. Sir Barristan, he's here too. But my co-hosts are awfully quiet today. Hopefully we'll get a lot done with minimal interruptions. Adric, minimal interruptions. Welcome to That's Great Adric. And we're changing things up. Things are different now than they were before. And I hope you enjoy it. I enjoyed putting this episode together. It did require a bit of research on my part, which I don't mind doing. But you're not interested in that. If you wanted to know how the sausages were made, you would go to the sausage factory. You wouldn't listen to me talk about Doctor Who. Episodes 4 and 5 have aired since we last spoke. Knock Knock and Oxygen. And I will touch on those episodes a little bit later on. But that is definitely not the focus of this episode. This week, That's Great Adric takes a look at Series 7 of Doctor Who. I don't mean Stephen Moffat's Series 7 with the 11th Doctor. Today we're taking a look at Series 7 of classic Doctor Who, which just so happens to be the first series featuring John Pertwee as the third Doctor. Exciting, right? Adric's excited. But I think he's excited because he found a Pokemon. He's playing Pokemon Red on the Game Boy. John Pertwee, the third Doctor, Series 7. We'll finish it up next time. But today we're going to go through the basically the production aspect of Series 7 and take a bit of a look at John Pertwee's third Doctor as far as Series 7 goes and Liz Shaw, the companion for Series 7. We'll talk a little bit about Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart and unit, but first we're gonna do some news. First and foremost, 
Oof, a lot of good news this week, but we're going to start with the bad news. Michelle Gomez, Missy, will be leaving Doctor Who following her current guest stint in Series 10. This is not surprising news, although it does suck, because I'm going so far as to say that the Mistress is probably far and away the best villain that we've seen in the bon in the modern era of Doctor Who. And she gets that title because she's had one, two, three, four, four appearances so far, and uh, two or three more in series ten. So, you know, she's had some uh, well, more than that, more than that because she had appearances, special appearances, brief appearances in the first few episodes of series eight before we knew who she was. She had some time to grow into the role of Missy in Dark Water, the 11th episode of Series 8. Her character was completely developed. She was nailing the relationship between the Doctor and Master. And kudos to Peter Capaldi because he also was able to jump right into that relationship and really capture what the relationship between the Doctor and the Master is. More kudos because the Doctor and the Master had changed so much since they had last seen one another, which is going back to the end of time. And Michelle Gomez will be missed. And I was, was kind of holding out hope that she'd be around for uh, Chris Chibnall's run. It, it's better off. Again, Chris Chibnall is starting with a clean slate. It's really the best way to move from showrunner to showrunner. And it does add more intrigue to the final half, the final third of Series 10. And, again, we'll, we'll speak more on that shortly. Michelle Gomez will be leaving Doctor Who following her guest stint in Series 10. And this is according to an interview she did with the Radio Times, so you know it's legit. Quote, to quote Michelle Gomez, My pals are leaving, so I'm leaving too. My pals are going, so I'm going. Everybody's leaving, so I'm going too. I mean, what would I do without Peter... And Stephen, who would I be? Nah, it's done now. It's over. It's the end of a chapter. Michelle Gomez goes on to say that Doctor Who was the best job she's ever had. And somehow I doubt that. But she says she got to be an ass-kicking action figure. And she got to do this as a woman of a certain age. And she's going to miss the amazing, wonderful, incredible, incredible... Peter Capaldi, and we all will, we're all going to miss the amazing, wonderful, incredible Peter Capaldi. And she says he is one of the best doctors we've ever had, and that Stephen Moffat has given her the best lines of her career. And she's not ruling out a return somewhere down the road, but she's not going to commit. And honestly, I'm, I'm not sure that Chris Chibnall would have extended an invitation to her I haven't spoken much to Chris Chibnall, and I'm not going to until Series 10 is, is over and done with. I'll start taking a closer look at Chris Chibnall, but I will say this about him right now. He is a he's an established television producer. He knows how to tell a story, and he knows what he wants. And as tantalizing as it may be to want to include Michelle Gomez, an established monster, an established villain, as you take over a property that's been around forever, 
a job that has a lot of pressure to it, it seems like a no-brainer to keep somebody like Michelle Gomez involved in the program. But Chris Chibble's not going to take the easy way. He's going to start from scratch with everything, as well he should. We'll talk more about that in the coming months. Big finish news. And this is this is really, really just great news. Um, Torchwood. Aliens Among Us. This will be a three-box set audio drama. And we've been getting Torchwood stories from Big Finish. And most of them have been really good. All the ones I've listened to. I'll be first to admit that I stopped listening. Maybe at the beginning of 2016. I just didn't have the time to keep listening to Big Finish audio dramas. But I'll tell you what. I'm back in. Torchwood Aliens Among Us. It picks up. It continues from where the TV series left off. So technically, this is Series 5 of Torchwood. It follows the events of Miracle Day, which was the BBC and uh, Stars, the American premium cable network, joint effort, Torchwood Miracle Day. Torchwood team is reunited, and Captain Jack, Gwen, and Reese are, jo- are joined by new characters, and these new characters are co-created and overseen by none other than Russell T. Davies, the creator of Torchwood. John Barrowman, Evie Miles, and Kai Owen, they all return. And the tag, it's not a tagline, but the brief synopsis goes as this. Captain Jack and Gwen Cooper have restarted Torchwood in Cardiff at the home of the original Torchwood 3. But it's a very different Cardiff. Something terrible has happened to the city every day getting darker, will Torchwood need to adapt a whole new approach? Somehow I think yes. James Goss is producing this series of uh, Torchwood, Series 5, and this is official, it's Series 5, that James Goss is producing. And who is James Goss, you ask? Well, James Goss is a master of supplementary materials to establish properties mostly Doctor Who and Torchwood. He wrote a novel about the 11th Doctor, a novel about the, I think about the 10th Doctor, he wrote a Torchwood novel. He produced the BBC Doctor Who website in the year 2000 before the modern series returned, and it was treated like a cult television website, which is funny that that's what Doctor Who was considered in the year 2000. It really goes to show you what both Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat have done for this property. But James Goss, he's worked with some of the uh, big finished Torchwood already, and now he's producing the entire series, and I'm confident that he's he's a guy that can do this, because this isn't a visual medium, obviously. So you don't have to worry about the budget, the production, special effects. You just have to worry about good stories. And James Goss knows these characters. He's already been writing stories about them. He's been writing stories since Torchwood was in Series 1, Series 2 on BBC 3 because he had the responsibility of the expanded universe of Torchwood and Doctor Who. So now he's in the driver's seat. And Series 5, Aliens Among Us, will be released in three separate box sets. The first coming in August, second in October, and the third in 2018. The first box set is four hour-long stories, and they are called Changes Everything, 
written by James Goss. Aliens and Sex and Chips and Gravy, written by James Goss. Or, spelled like Bobby Orr, the hockey player, written by Juno Dawson, who also wrote another Big Finish Torchwood story. And Superiority Complex, written by A.K. Benedict, who might have written a previous Torchwood Big Finish story. I'm not sure. I didn't do my homework on A.K. Benedict. What do I think about this? Well, listen. Honestly, I've, I've gone back and I've tried to rewatch some Torchwood. And I can't sit through most of it. But I think that's because I have less time to watch a television show I've already seen. I have less time now than I did when I first watched Torchwood. And if I have time to rewatch a television show, it's going to be Doctor Who. I would like to be able to sit and rewatch Torchwood, and you know, one day I'm sure I will. But going off memory alone, from the first time I saw the entire series, series one had some moments of not not genius, definitely not genius. But series one had some some good moments. Series two was not far superior to series one, but a lot better. It, it gelled a lot better. They had a bigger budget, higher stakes a better series-long story arc, and a sad ending. But series three of Torchwood, which is more of a mini-series than an actual full-length television series, although over there in England, you can have two episodes and call it a full series. Series three of Torchwood is called Children of Earth, and for a guy like me, probably for a person like you listening to this podcast, for people that not just love Doctor Who, for people that love good science fiction, well thought out drama, Children of Earth could quite possibly be the best five hours of television since the turn of the century. That's a bold statement, and I'm sure it's not true. And as I say it, I don't even believe it. But Children of Earth is the best Torchwood that we've gotten, probably the best we will get. It hangs with the best modern Doctor Who stories. It's gut-wrenching, beautifully paced. If you have not seen Children of Earth, you do need to either watch Series 1 or Series 2, preferably Series 2, so that you have the emotional investment in these characters. But if you have not seen Torchwood Series 3, Children of Earth, stop the podcast right now and go watch it. This was a, a television event, and it aired five episodes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of one week. You know, a lot of Torchwood fans say that Torchwood ended with Children of Earth. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away, but really, I can't, I can't advise you enough to go and watch Children of Earth. A series 4 of Torchwood, Miracle Day, it had some good ideas, and it wasn't bad. But we start to run into some problems, which would be the same problems if Torchwood was coming back as a television program. John Barrowman is starting to look old. He's 50. I know he is, because I follow his Facebook he had a 50th birthday party. And he's a great guy. Who doesn't love John Barrowman? I love John Barrowman. But the character of Captain Jack is immortal and doesn't age. John Barrowman does age. I think we've passed the point where he can go and do a Series 5 and not look like he's no longer Captain Jack Harkness. And that sucks, but that's just the reality of aging, of being a human being, you know? That's his character, immortal. 
he doesn't change, but he would have changed. He would have aged significantly. And you saw it in Miracle Day. You saw that he aged. And Miracle Day was 10 years ago. So the fact that we get new Torchwood and it's Cold Series 5 and it's audio only is the best possible scenario. And I am fucking way excited for these audio box sets. I really am. Of course, I would love to see them back on TV in a new story of but if you really think about it, this is better. More big finish news. The Tenth Doctor returns. Tenth Doctor, what are they calling it? The Tenth Doctor Adventures Volume 2. Comes out in November 2017, right in time for Shoney Wan Kenobi's birthday. Me. My birthday. In November. Volume 1 featured The Doctor and Donna Noble, and I haven't listened to it, but I'm going to. I'm going to purchase this. Volume 2 features Billy Piper as Rose. Tennant and Piper reunite for all of the fanboys and fangirls, all those Doctor Who fans that say they love Doctor Who but have not watched a single story since, what, the 11th hour? Look, people love, people fucking love David Tennant. They love David Tennant. I love David Tennant. Who doesn't love David Tennant? But the 10th Doctor is the be-all, end-all for a lot of Doctor Who fans or a lot of people that say they're Doctor Who fans. I'm not going to sit here and argue that 10th Doctor's run was subpar. It wasn't. It was amazing, obviously. For most of my Doctor Who life, the 10th Doctor was my Doctor. He still is. He always will be. Because by definition, quote-unquote, my Doctor is the Doctor with whom you first fell in love with the program. David Tennant is my Doctor. But Peter Capaldi is my favorite Doctor ever and the greatest Doctor ever and just the best actor ever. And I love Peter Capaldi. The Tenth Doctor returns with Rose. David Tennant, Billy Piper reprise their iconic roles for three new audio adventures. Executive produced by Jason High Ellie. I don't know who that is. The Tenth Doctor Adventures Volume 2, November of 2017. Three one hour long full cast audio adventures. Episode 1 is called Attack of the Zaros. Written by John Dorney with special guest star Camille Kaduji. Kaduri, Kaduri, Camille Kaduri, whoever, Jackie Tyler. That's pretty cool, right? Episode 2 is Sword of the Chevalier, written by Guy Adams. Episode 3 is Cold Vengeance, written by Matt Fitton and featuring Ice Warriors. And we can only hope that we get to hear Mark Gatiss's new kind of Ice Warriors. Mark Gatiss's new kind of ice warriors that's basically the news but it's big stuff right very 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 cool stuff and our new feature which I call the contenders the contender the contender the contender the contender when I say the contenders I mean the contenders for the role of the 13th doctor and you gotta think we're gonna get an official announcement pretty soon in the next month Honestly, I would think basically the big news as far as contenders for the role of the 13th Doctor, we have a late favorite to be the 13th Doctor, Luke Treadway. And Luke Treadway is the star of Fortitude, which is a series on Amazon Prime, a series my mother-in-law has been telling me to watch. I just, I just haven't had time to watch it. But Luke Treadway is also in a movie which is on Amazon. It might be on Netflix. It's called a street cat named Bob. 
he hasn't gotten universal praise for his performance in that movie, but he's gotten some some praise, I guess. Enough where he's a strong contender this late in the game. The game of winning the role of the 13th Doctor. So Luke Treadway. The other two contenders right now, it seems that Rob Stark has dropped off the radar, unfortunately. Honestly, he wouldn't have been that good. The more I think about it, it would have been a ratings move, and I'm glad they're not making a ratings move. It seems that a woman doctor is com completely off the table, which is great for me because I am a racist towards women. No, I'm not a racist towards women. I just think it would be stupid to cast the doctor as a woman, and I went over this last episode, so if you want to hear why, go back to last episode. But it's not because I don't think a woman deserves to be a doctor. I think it's because it'd be stupid for a woman to be the doctor. Anyway, the other two contenders, Chris Marshall, still hanging tough, and another new contender, not nearly as favored as Luke Treadway, Sasha Dowin. Sasha Dowin. I don't know if I'm saying that name right. S-A-C-H-A. Sasha. D-H-A-W-A-N. Dowin. You will recognize him from An Adventure in Space and Time. He played, I don't know the character's name, but he uh, he helped Verity Lambert produce the first serial of Doctor Who. And this guy has been lobbying for the role on Twitter, in interviews, pining, smiling, saying, oh, I would love to do that. It'd be a dream come true. <laughs> if he gets cast as the 13th Doctor, I'm sure he deserves to be the 13th Doctor. And Luke Treadway, like I said, I haven't had a chance to watch Fortitude, but I will try to. For me, of these three gentlemen, Chris Marshall is still my favorite and who I would cast because he's ginger and tall. So, but we'll see. We'll talk more about it next episode of That's Great Adric on our new segment called The Contender. 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 Of course, the decision for who becomes the 13th Doctor, it's a four-person committee. Obviously, Chris Chibnall has a big say because he's going to be running the show. It's going to be him and whoever's cast as the 13th Doctor that really has to make the show work. Matt Strevens, not Matt Stevens, Matt Strevens, he's going to be the new executive producer of Doctor Who. Piers Wenger and Charlotte Moore, who both work for the BBC. So the four of them are going to choose the 13th Doctor. And we'll see. We'll talk about it more next time on The Contender. Alright, that's that for news. We're going to take a break there. And when we come back, we're going to start to talk about Series 7 of Classic Doctor Who. So enjoy this brief musical interlude. I'm going to let sleeping dogs lie. And Adric? Oh my god, he fell asleep. Alright, I'm going to sing him a lullaby. Hopefully he stays asleep for the rest of the episode.
Hey yo. Hey yo. Hello. Thanks for sticking with us. That's great. Shoney Wan, Adric, Subariston, Daisy Bell. My new collection of Doctor Who Titan mini final figures. Which is growing. Maybe I'll post it on, uh, on the Facebook page. The subject at hand for today, for this episode, the classic Doctor Who series. And why did I choose Series 7 of Classic Doctor Who? Well, honestly, the first reason I chose it is because it's the only classic series of Doctor Who that I've watched completely. Not a good enough reason, but that's the initial reason. Series 7 has the sub-name Exiled to Earth. For Series 7, the show got a new Doctor. This would be the third actor to portray the Doctor, hence the moniker of the third Doctor. But John Pertwee is what's left after Patrick Troughton's regeneration. And along with a new Doctor, we have a new producer of Doctor Who, and his name is Barry Letts. And Barry Letts' previous experience with Doctor Who was he had directed The Enemy of the World, which is a second Doctor story, and it was actually a missing episode. I don't know how many years exactly, but it was a missing episode. And I know it was because I purchased The Enemy of the World, and I watched it. And the reason I did that was because it was recently found and produced and put together and released. It's a pretty good story, I guess. I really have to be in the right frame of mind to enjoy classic Doctor Who while I can just randomly select a story from modern Doctor Who and find myself emotionally invested enough to enjoy that story to its maximum. Not as easy to do with a classic Doctor Who story, and that's just because I don't have enough experience, particularly with the first and second Doctor, although I've been trying to school myself on the second Doctor's run. Barry Less directed The Enemy of the World, a second Doctor story. He's the new producer for Series 7, and Terrence Dix is the new story editor. And this team of Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, it would remain throughout the entire run of John Pertwee, the Third Doctor era, 1970 to 1974, and a lot of classic Doctor Who fans, scholars, people real familiar with the ins and outs of classic Doctor Who, they call this team of Letts and Dix, Letts and Dix, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, they call this team one of the best producer-story-editor teams and definitely the most stable for the longest time. That's an important fact. But before I get to that, to really appreciate Series 7 of Classic Doctor Who, we need to know the lead-up to Series 7. We need to know what was going on with Series 6. Because Series 6 was considered difficult by the BBC. It wasn't a failure. It definitely was not a failure, but it was difficult for the BBC. And what would make a series difficult for the BBC? Viewership. And viewing figures were on a steady decline leading up to Series 7. So if we go back to Series 1 of Doctor Who in 1963, the average viewership was 6.15 million. In 1964, 8.88 million viewers per episode on average. In 1965, 9.95 million viewers. Incredible. But then we start to have issues. In 1966, we see a drop to 6.74 million average per episode. 1967, 7.25 million. 1968, 7.12 million. And here is not the biggest drop, but a significant drop. It drops from 7.12 million in 1968 to 6.05 million in 1969. So along with this 
decline in viewership. A lot of the fans, the fans in the know, I guess what you could call the fandom, as it were, in 1969. But a lot of these viewers considered the program past its prime, maybe calling for the program to end. The first regeneration, from William Hartnell to Patrick Troughton, was done out of necessity, because the show was doing so well. And William Hartnell was at such an advanced age, and his dementia was so advanced. I don't know if it's diagnosed dementia, I don't even know if you can call it dementia, but I know that he couldn't remember lines, and I know that the character of the doctor was less and less of a focus as time went on, just because Hartnell could not handle the production schedule. So the first regeneration into Patrick Troughton was an idea that was meant to keep the show hot, to keep it going, without having to pretend that a new actor was the same doctor. And we could sit here all night and talk about how clever regeneration is and how regeneration is what's kept this program alive for over half a century. But I'm not gonna, because that's not the point. The point is the first regeneration was done out of necessity to keep the show alive. The second regeneration, kind of for the same reasons, but mostly because the show needed to be revamped, because the shtick was getting old. Things needed to be changed. So other than the regeneration of the second Doctor into the third Doctor, there's quite a few other changes as well. In today's day and age, this is what we would call a soft reboot of a television show. This is like when Jack Bauer came back for one more season of 24 six or seven years later or 10 how many i don't know i didn't watch 24 i'm just trying to think of a equivalent it's not like a, a reimagined series like battlestar galactica it's not like that it's the same series same characters in a way every regeneration is a soft reboot of doctor who but none so much as series seven coming out of series six this revamping it started with the final second doctor series it started with series six and in series six unit was created and UNIT was created, UNIT standing for United Nations Intelligence Task Force, completely imaginary military group sanctioned by the United Nations. It was created to provide a recurring cast on planet Earth, with more of a focus on planet Earth to cut back on the budget, less outer space stories. This was a ballsy move. It could have gone the way of jumping the shark, or it could have gone the way of Will Riker's beard and jumping the shark. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that term before. It's when a show reaches the point where it is no longer relevant and no longer quality. It refers to an episode of Happy Days where Fonzie jumped over a shark on his motorcycle. They ran out of things to do. So now they have Fonz jumping over a shark on his motorcycle. So they call it jumping the shark. When a TV show does something out of character to take a gamble for the sake of the show. Jumping the shark is bad. Will Riker's beard is good because we know Star Trek the next generation if you watched it you know the quality got a lot better once Will Riker got that beard towards the end of series six the doctor's past is revealed he visits Gallifrey which was not called Gallifrey in series six but it was known to be his home planet we get some origins of the Time Lords and we learn that the doctor escaped from the Time Lords and the Time Lord culture because it was not something he was interested in so these changes were meant to shoot some new life into Doctor Who, and they were decided on while Patrick Troughton was still the Doctor. However, Patrick Troughton became wary of typecasting, pretty much like every actor to play the Doctor since, and he decided to leave the program. Fraser Hines, who played his companion Jamie, he also wanted to leave. Producer Derek Sherwin, he was eager to leave also. 
the slate was wiped completely clean from Series 6 going into Series 7, with the exception of Terrence Dix, who was relatively new to the job of story editor. Looking at Patrick Troutman's run as the Doctor, it seems the production and the writing heads were constantly fleeing the series. Each series of the second Doctor had featured a new producer or script editor working with a producer or script editor looking to leave for greener pastures. In other words, it had a brand new producer working with a script editor who had a foot out the door. Or, in the case of Terrence Dix, new script editor working with Derek Sherwin, who has a foot out the door. That's why it's important that Barry Letts and Terrence Dix were able to work together for so long and to be excited about the property they were working with and the stories they were telling. William Hartnell's run was wildly successful, and the BBC was determined to recapture those ratings. It's possible the Patrick Troughton era was a too-many-cooks situation, and it's possible that the Patrick Troughton era was an uneasy culture for creativity, and it's possible that the Patrick Troughton era was a lot of BBC bigwigs standing over people's shoulders to make sure that the show was done the way they wanted it to be done, which would be the way they thought would create a successful TV show and recapture the 1963-64-65 series of Doctor Who. But thus and so, much like the ending of William Hartnell's run, Doctor Who would get a mix-up, a la Regeneration. So Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks get to work, and the setup for this revamping would occur at the end of Series 6. The second Doctor is punished for running away from Gallifrey all those years ago, and he's punished for mingling and causing what the Time Lords saw as chaos throughout time and space. Jamie and Zoe, his companions, longtime companions, they're returned to their own time zone, and the Doctor is given a forced regeneration, and here's the key to all of it. He's exiled to Earth and not able to use his TARDIS. In addition to Series 7 being the first of the John Pertwee, Barry Letts, Terrence Dix era, it would also be the first Doctor Who series produced in color. So it's kind of like the stars aligned for series seven. All of these changes taking place at once, and then the series is going to be produced in color. The BBC is taking a gamble with series seven, but it makes a lot of sense, especially looking back. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but you want to increase ratings? Stop producing a black and white show, especially when people have color TVs. It'd be like if Doctor Who was not produced in high definition when Stephen Moffat took over. They kept it in that RTD vision. The entirety of Series 7 being set on planet Earth had been the decision of Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin, a decision they made in Series 6, a decision made for budgetary reasons. So this decision that Bryant and Sherwin made, the BBC embraced. So think of it like The Walking Dead, right? AMC is always trying to make that show on the cheap to maximize the profit. And they have so many goddamn viewers, if they lose a few because the production sucks, whatever, they're still making a monster profit on that television show. So Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks, as they take over the program, they're not happy with the shackle that their storytelling has on it. In other words, they're handcuffed because of decisions made by Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin. Another change from Series 6 to Series 7 is a big drop in the number of episodes. Series 6 had 44 episodes. Series 7 would only have 25. And these 25 episodes would make up four separate stories. Spearhead from Space is the first story of Series 7. And the newly regenerated Doctor is exiled to Earth in the 20th century. At the same time, a group of meteorites 
fall in Oxley Woods. The Autons plan to replace humanity with a plastic population. It's up to the Doctor to stop them. The second story, Series 7, is Doctor Who and the Silurians, awoken from eons of sleep. The Silurians lurk at a nuclear research center, using their mental powers to drive the researchers to insanity. The Doctor must stop the Silurians and must stop a brewing war between these two ancient and evolved species. The third story was The Ambassadors of Death. The Mars Probe 7 and its brave astronauts have gone missing. Eight months later, the Recovery 7 is sent to find them, but contact with Recovery 7 is halted by a piercing alien sound originating from Earth. And the fourth story of Series 7 is Inferno, a project to penetrate the Earth's crust experiences setbacks and violence. The Doctor investigates and finds himself in an alternate universe. Series 7 sees an increase in viewership. It is up an average of over 1 million viewers each week from Series 6. So I would say that the gamble paid off. I would say it worked. And the viewership breakdown for Spearhead from Space, it was a four-episode story. So episode one drew 8.4 million, a week later 8.1 million, a week later 8.3 million, and a week later 8.1 million again. Doctor Who and the Silurians, a seven episode story, 8.8 million, then a drop off 7.3 million, 7.5 million, 8.2 million for the fourth episode, a drop again, 7.5 million, 7.2 million, 7.5 million. Ambassadors of Death, another seven part story, 7.1 7.1 million, 7.6 million, 8 million, 9.3 million, 7.1 million, 6.9 million, 6.4 million. And Inferno, considered by many in the fandom to be the greatest Doctor Who story. 5.7 million, 5.9 million, 4.8 million, 4.6 million, 5.4 million, 6.7 million, and 5.5 million. So you really see that, that final big drop in viewership. This had to worry the BBC going into Series 8, but overall, it's a win. Average viewership is up over a million viewers each week. So let's talk about John Pertwee for a minute. What do you think, Adric? Can we talk about John Pertwee? Do you mind? Do you mind if I talk about John Pertwee? You want me to talk about Peter Davison, don't you? No, not today. John Pertwee's doctor contrasts strongly to Patrick Troughton and William Hartnell, most significantly through his spryness. He's a man of action, not violent. No doctor is violent, but the third doctor does not shy away from physical conflict, and he is a master of Aikido. While exiled to Earth, the doctor becomes the scientific advisor to UNIT. UNIT, again, means United Nations Intelligence Task Force. In the modern series, it will become the Unified Intelligence Task Force. It's a military branch that investigates and combats paranormal and extraterrestrial threats to Earth. It's a lot like Torchwood. The third doctor works alongside UNIT to help combat these threats, but every once in a while, the Time Lords would reach out to the third doctor and use him for covert missions on other worlds. So once in a while, we did get a space episode, a story taking place off Earth. This didn't happen in Series 7, but it would happen in following series. John Pertwee's Doctor did have a catchphrase, and that catchphrase is, Now listen to me. Now listen to me. The Third Doctor displays an air of authority, but rebels against it at the same time. Interesting note, the line, Reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, is a line that Pertwee would use in place 
of what he called pseudo-techno-battle, though this line was only used twice on air. He would often tell Terrence Diggs to write that line instead of a long-winded scientific techno-battle, like he said. John Pertwee was not cast by Barry Letts. He was cast by Peter Bryant and Derek Sherwin as they were preparing to leave Doctor Who. Actually, John Pertwee was not the first choice to play the third Doctor. Ron Moody, a different actor, and I have no idea what became of his career, but he was first cast as the third Doctor, but he had to pass. He became unavailable due to other work. As soon as he passed, John Pertwee was offered the role. Hartnell and Troughton, their doctors were teachers. They were men of science. Pertwee, his doctor, was a man of action with a taste for fancy clothes. Somewhat of a teacher, obviously a man of science, but that was no longer the main characteristics of the doctor. Before Doctor Who, John Pertwee was a comedy actor. He performed cabaret, believe it or not. And it's pretty interesting because Pertwee would go on and credit Doctor Who for discovering who he really was. The head of BBC drama, a man named Sean Sutton, he advised Pertwee to play the doctor as himself. Basically, play John Pertwee. Play John Pertwee, he said. And John Pertwee replied, now who in the hell is that? And I guess John Pertwee, he just didn't know himself. And he credits his years on Doctor Who with helping him to answer that question. Looking at Series 7 as a whole, without focusing on any story in particular, you can interpret, okay, actually, once you start thinking about it, you can easily interpret that the James Bond film franchise, which was very popular in 1969-1970, the James Bond film franchise had a large influence on the Earthbound Third Doctor. Series 7 sees the Doctor taking part in covert military actions on Earth, car chases, action sequences and set pieces not seen before in Doctor Who. And even though these characteristics have drawn a lot of criticism, Pertwee seemed to play the Doctor as debonair, arrogant, smooth-talking, and maybe this criticism has merit. I would rather believe, I do believe, that this is cosmetic, cosmetic characteristics. Because the Third Doctor has all the traits that have come to be known and loved about the Doctor. But let's entertain the James Bond-inspired Doctor Who for a moment. This inspiration would be most prevalent in Series 7. And one key James Bond story trope that does not show up is sexually charged motivations and relationships. And that's great, because (laughs) that is so not Doctor Who. Look, the BBC was trying things in the name of a return to ratings glory. They know their wheelhouse was kids, family, and most importantly, the fans that had been passionate throughout the first Doctor's run. The TARDIS, the spaceship of the Doctor, is not around in Series 7, and it's basically replaced with Bessie. And Bessie was a canary yellow modified Ford 103E, I guess a type of Ford, and it was modified and called a Siva Edwardian, whatever that means. The car, as featured in the program, had technical modifications that assisted the Doctor, much like the Batmobile helped Batman in the live-action camp series. It's actually pretty reminiscent of the Batmobile at times. Secret weapons and gadgets, reminiscent of the Bond Aston Martin also. The supporting cast at unit, the supporting team at unit, they kind of become similar in character tropes and narrative function to Bond characters. Q, Moneypenny, M, and the Doctor, who is now a man of action, 
He's still capable of science and logic, like the first and second doctor, but he can fight enemies to get out of a tight situation, and he can work any mechanical Earth device. He can participate in Earth spaceflight. He can span the globe in shroud to stop evil plans. He functions as a jack of all trades, but also a master of each. He's always the smartest man in the room, but not the way William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton's doctors were. He's the smartest man in the room, the way James Bond is, because his outlook, his thought process, those cut through the politics and the authoritarian red tape. He is righteous, and he is always aware of that. Let's talk about the doctor's companion for a moment. Liz Shaw was played by Caroline John, and this actress could easily slip into the role of a Bond girl in 1969. Thankfully, there is absolutely no sexual tension between Liz Shaw and the Doctor. While the character of Liz Shaw is the third Doctor's companion, hers is not the point of view that functions as the viewers. There's that saying that the companion is our access into the world of the Doctor. That's not the case with Liz. Not at all. Liz does not paint this world, nor does she paint the Doctor. Instead, and this is similar to a Bond girl. Liz often gets into trouble and finds herself in the role of a damsel in distress. But when she's not in trouble, Liz Shaw displays intelligence and wit that is a match for the doctors. And these dueling characteristics, they should have put Liz Shaw in the league of a season 7 Clara Oswald. Which isn't good. But they don't. They actually work. And we have a companion that is disappointing because we didn't have enough time with her and we didn't get to see that character grow and evolve and as it happens the doctor has very little effect on her character because carolyn john was not renewed of her contract after series seven and she was not to return for series eight this decision which is now historically mostly unpopular seemed to be made for the right reasons at the time barry letts believed that liz shaw the character was too intelligent and too strong to be a counterpart to the Doctor. This isn't as bad as it sounds. This is the strong female character television viewers today call for, but a character that was basically wasted in 1970 primetime British television broadcasting. The Doctor, especially in 1970, he required a companion that he could patronize, a companion that would regularly be in awe of him. And Liz Shaw was not that companion. She's succeeded by Josephine Grant, played by Katie Manning, in Series 8. And these two characters initially seem polar opposites. By the end of Katie Manning's run, they are a lot more alike. But Joe is much more the speed of this Doctor. And that's all it was. This show is a great character, and it didn't fit. Barry Letts, Terrence Dix, they weren't about to make it fit. But for the duration of Series 7, a not-quite-pseudo-Doctor-James-Bond hybrid with a pseudo-Bond-girl-companion hybrid. And we haven't even mentioned Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, who's a pseudo-M-slash-authority figure hybrid. I don't believe that the James Bond theory goes that deep. I really don't. Some elements of Bond were used, to be sure, but in the big picture, these elements are so small and ultimately insignificant, and they were just used because they were popular at the time. This series is a result of an Earth-bound storyline no TARDIS, a larger supporting cast, and a new approach to what was at the time seen as a failing Doctor Who program. So sure, it seems like there it seems like there's more there's definitely more gunshots in series seven than any series prior. But that's not James Bond, that's humanity in Cold War England. 
art reflects life, so on and so forth. Personally, the gun battles, to me, grow very stale. But the fistfights and the Aikido, they don't. I actually enjoy those. They're actually rather refreshing from the plotting and sometimes manic first six series of Doctor Who. But it is interesting that there was a gun battle in every single story of Series 7. The importance of the Third Doctor, end of Series 7, historically, for Doctor Who. Series 7 would begin the establishment of Doctor Who characteristics that you saw in the Ninth and the Tenth and the Eleventh Doctors. Charming, gentlemanly, suave, not a man to shy away from conflict, and anti-authoritarian. But despite this more confident and aggressive nature, the Doctor's priority is always a peaceful resolution and the moral compass that the best of humanity can only strive to follow. Did that sound rehearsed, Adric? Are you sure? Alright, we're going to take a break there. A little musical interlude, and when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about John Pertwee's Doctor and about the latest Series 10 stories. So stick around, and we'll be right back. chocolate chip cookies. He's eaten nearly the entire package. Chocolate all over his face. It's fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Doing some reading about Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who, and not so much Series 7 as the third Doctor overall and John Pertley, the way the Third Doctor was portrayed, the way the Third Doctor was written, and trying to find some criticisms for the way the Third Doctor was portrayed and written. For me, the Third Doctor, and really any story during the Third Doctor's era, I find very easy to watch. Same as the Fourth Doctor, and even the Fifth Doctor. I find those stories to be the most entertaining of classic Doctor Who. And when I started watching classic Doctor Who, it was the third Doctor that I started with. And the only reason for that is because the black and white is just not something that I could 
not something I could handle at that time. And honestly, it's still not. I'm confident that one day I will dive deep into the first Doctor and the second Doctor, and I'm sure that I'll enjoy it, especially the second Doctor. But dipping my toes into the classic Doctor Who era, it was the third Doctor that I started with, and I did not regret it. And some of the first classic Doctor Who stories that I watched completely include The Green Death, Planet of Spiders, Spearhead from Space, and full disclosure, these were the classic Doctor Who stories that were on Netflix years ago, before Netflix lost the rights to Doctor Who, or gave up the rights, should I say. But they had classic Doctor Who, and they had a few stories from each Doctor. They had one story for the first Doctor, one for the second Doctor. The third Doctor had, I believe it was three stories. The fourth Doctor had a lot of stories. Fifth Doctor, not so much, just a few. Nothing from the sixth Doctor. And one from the seventh Doctor. A couple of them were, were like all-time great Doctor Who stories. City of Death with the fourth Doctor. A Spearhead from Space, which I, I I put up there with any any classic Doctor Who story. But there really was no rhyme or reason to the stories that were on Netflix. It was just sort of like a, a sampler to classic Doctor Who. I sampled it, and I can't say that I fell in love right away. It's neither here nor there. The third Doctor is always the Doctor from the classic era that I most easily comprehend, that I can just put on a, a third Doctor story and be fairly confident that I'm going to enjoy it. I mean, same thing with the fourth Doctor, but it's just, for me, the, th the third Doctor came first. Point being, I don't have much criticism for the third Doctor. John Pertwee did an amazing job, and I think the way he played the third Doctor, you see that in Peter Capaldi's 12th Doctor. You see that in Matt Smith's 11th Doctor. It's that sense of humor, which... Patrick Troughton seemed to have as the second Doctor, but something was lost in the performance. John Pertwee nailed it. But trying to get the opinion of an American such as myself who has watched some classic Doctor Who here and there, but isn't a... isn't fluent in the material, so to speak. So I did some reading on what British fans of Doctor Who thought of the third Doctor. And I found one criticism in particular that surprised me. A lot of UK viewers have labeled John Pertwee's Third Doctor as a Tory, T-O-R-Y. This is a political term. It means aristocratic. Toryism is a conservative political philosophy supporting the known social establishment, God, King, and country. In that order. That's the establishment. They're monarchists. England England is a monarchy. It has a queen, and one day that queen will die, and her son will become the king. When he dies, his son will become the king. That's monarchy. Now, does this monarch really rule the British Empire? Not how they used to. There's a government now. There's a prime minister. But the United Kingdom's not going to end 
their monarchy. They're not going to take the crown and the throne away from the royal family. Because for the most part, the English are Tories, as far as I understand the term Tory. Snooty, arrogant, aristocratic, treating other people according to their social standing, and this social standing being based on wealth, birth, genealogy, things that are for the most part, can't say out of somebody's control, but there's a lot of other factors that affect someone's wealth, birth, genealogy. So it seems to me that Tories communicate, network with other people, socialize with other people, based mostly on their social standing and if they're in the same social socioeconomic level. I think that makes sense. I hope that makes sense, but of all the doctors, I find it odd that John Pertwee is the one. Well, I find it odd that any of them would be labeled a Tory, but very odd that John Pertwee and his, and his third doctor are labeled a Tory, an aristocrat. When Peter Capaldi was cast as the 12th doctor and when promotional images started to come out with Capaldi, the first image of note was Capaldi in his outfit. And that's always the big thing when you get a new doctor, what their outfit will look like. And Peter Capaldi's outfit was based on John Pertwee's outfit. And this isn't a secret. This isn't some keen observation on my part. It was purposely reminiscent of the third doctor. And I love that outfit. He doesn't wear it. He hasn't worn it since series eight, but I love that outfit. And Capaldi's tagline at this time was Rebel Time Lord. And at once this this term, this name for the 12th Doctor embraces the ruling aristocratic aspect of his people, of the Time Lords, but it also embraces punk rock, tearing, tearing down the wall, the liberal left, anarchists, rebels, and Capaldi was maybe not so much, since he and Clara Oswald parted ways, maybe not so much a rebel Time Lord, but he certainly was upon his regeneration. So if anything, if I consider the third doctor a Tory, it's more along the lines of rebel Time Lord, like Capaldi. I'm American, and my understanding of a Tory may be incorrect. And it's based more on, when I say research, I mean Wikipedia. But using the term Tory as I understand it, according to Wikipedia. I conclude John Pertwee played the third doctor as a man loyal to his station, a Time Lord. Bear in mind, a Time Lord that had just been punished for not living like a Time Lord, not following Time Lord rules. And this wasn't a slap on the wrist that he got. He was killed. He lost a regeneration. He lost his TARDIS, and he lost two companions that had been with him for a long time. So keeping that regeneration in mind, would you really criticize that character for acting like a Tory, like a Time Lord? So this is assuming that Tory and Time Lord are much the same, and as I understand it, they are. So John Pertwee did play the Third Doctor as a man, loyal to the Time Lords, but he's open-minded. 
and he's liberal enough to take advantage of his station as sort of like an anti-authoritarian authoritarian. But Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks made lemonade with the doctors exiled to Earth. They did not like that their creativity would be bound to the planet Earth. But were they so deep in their own creative frustrations with Series 7 that they wrote their stories with a subconscious level of commentary of the British socio-economic status quo? It's possible, I guess. There are too many other tedious plot points and very subtle social commentaries that are loaded into the four stories that make up Series 7. So much so that a deconstruction of their interpretation of the Doctor seems highly unlikely. If there is a conflicting portrayal purposely built into the Third Doctor, I'd wager it is more the responsibility of John Pertwee than Terrence Dix. Keep in mind, John Pertwee was a comedic actor, and when he finished Doctor Who, he went back to comedy. And we spoke earlier how John Pertwee used the role of the Doctor to learn about himself, to find out who he was. All agree, Pertwee threw so much of himself into the role of the Doctor to discover himself, and his years as Doctor Who portray, they showcase a man that can play into social and economic roles, but would rather rebel against it. The way he dresses and carries himself, yeah, okay, that's aristocratic. That's a Tory. The way he sometimes speaks to people, somewhat authoritarian, okay. But he fights for the little guy. And he shows no respect for other characters that could be labeled a Tory. And you can look at the four stories of Series 7 as proof. Characters he comes across of a higher social standing, he locks horns with them immediately. But he's very polite about it. And it's kind of silly that the Doctor got a political critique when the only politics that ever show up in a Doctor Who story only have to do with the working class, lower income, lower middle class, common people, and how they're exposed ostracized, taken advantage of, and the doctor fights for them. And that's been the case. Every single doctor, every story that touches a subject like that. So, yeah, he looks like a Tory. Maybe he talks like a Tory. Maybe sometimes he acts like a Tory, but he's not an aristocrat. He is a Time Lord, like my man, Peter Capaldi. He is a rebel Time Lord. Do a real quick note on Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart. Brigadier would become a supporting character that a lot of classic Doctor Who fans consider their favorite character. And even in today's modern series, Lethbridge Stewart holds an iconic place in the Doctor Who fandom and the Doctor Who narrative. And there are spin-offs and continuing adventures of this character still being produced today. Many without the involvement of the Doctor in any regeneration. But Series 7 doesn't come close to capturing what the Brigadier would become. And this isn't Lethbridge Stewart's first series. He was around with the second Doctor. Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart, referred to as the Brigadier, played by Nicholas Courtney. And we'll talk more about him, maybe even next week, or 
Next episode, rather. I'm going to talk about Tories. The Brigadier is a Tory, if anything, in Series 7. But he functions more of an authority figure in Series 7. The head of unit. A righteous authority figure for the Doctor to come into conflict with over issues that are not black and white. The Brigadier is not one-dimensional in Series 7, but it does most of the time seem like he serves a single purpose. That's going to wrap it up for Series 7 of Classic Doctor Who. And when we speak again, we're going to speak to the four stories of Series 7. And we're going to speak to the narrative arcs, the themes. We're going to go in depth without going play by play. So between now and then, feel free to check out Series 7 on BritBox. BritBox is the greatest thing ever for a classic Doctor Who fan. We're going to take a, another quick musical interlude. It looks like Adric is going to be sick from all these cookies that he ate. And when we get back, we're going to do a non-spoiler review of Knock Knock and Oxygen, the last two stories of Series 10. We'll be right back. I crossed the void beyond the mind, the empty space that circles time. I see where others stumble blind, the secret truth they never find. Eternal wisdom is my guide. Waste the TARDIS lies to taste the secret source of life. A present science can't deny exists within, outside, behind the latitude of human minds. I am a doctor. My voyage dissects the course of time. Who knows, you say? Adric fell asleep again. Sir Barristan, he's very quiet. Daisy Bell had to leave us and go hide in the backyard. So we'll see her next episode. Knock Knock. Oxygen. Episodes 4 and 5 of Series 10 of Doctor Who. I've been paying a lot of attention. Not so much to reviews of Series 10, but to chatter. Does that make sense? Just a general vibe of what people are saying about Series 10. And as I understand it, very positive. Knock, knock. So this is the fourth episode of Series 10. It's directed by Bill Anderson, who also directed the previous episode, Thin Ice. Knock, knock is written by Mike Bartlett. He has no experience in Doctor Who until now. But he created and wrote a British program called Doctor Foster. People I know that have been watching Series 10... A few people that I regularly read, people are saying that Knock Knock is the weakest story. I'm not saying that, but it is problematic. There are some issues. I think Knock Knock is too cut and dry. I think there's not enough to make this story enjoyable. Based on the teaser for this story, based on the talent involved, as I watched it, it could have been a very good Doctor Who story. The ingredients were there. I think it was a case of not using them at the right time in the right way. There were scares, there was anxiety, but the set design was great. The tone, even the pace, but again, the pace is questionable. It's right there, right on the border, close to dangerously 
flying off the tracks because the pacing can go too fast at times and again that's a critique of the entire Stephen Moffat era but this time the pacing isn't too fast because there's too much information too much story to tell this time the pacing is too fast because the tone the ambiance the setup the first act that's the winner of the story and too much time is spent on that so the second act the third act that's where the pacing gets iffy almost off the rails was this story scary almost the imagery set design but the story telling to the wonderful set design of this episode there's a particular character we don't meet until the third act end of the second act and while the character is interesting the character wasn't necessary the inclusion of this character hurt the story so why was this character in the story at all because of the themes of season 10 the themes of Peter Capaldi's entire era and for that matter the themes of Stephen Moffat's entire run as story editor and showrunner death what happens after you die can you prevent death and if so what happens and if you think about Doctor Who in those terms exploring that idea go back to the 11th hour of series 5 go back before that go back to the episodes that Stephen Moffat wrote for Russell T. Davies, the empty child, and the doctor dances. Death, how death changes someone. Especially in series 10, the main, you see some connections at the end of the third act that are supposed to be meaningful to Bill because of her relationship with her mom, or lack thereof. So all the things that didn't work in Knock Knock, I understand why they were attempted, and I wish that they could have worked. The story could have used a slower pace getting to know Bill's friends a little bit better. Oxygen, I love this episode. Confident for the rest of series 10. I already was, more so now. I shouldn't be surprised at how much I enjoyed Oxygen though. Directed by Charles Parker, but Oxygen is written by my man, the guy that I hoped would become the new showrunner for Doctor Who, Jamie Matheson. Jamie Matheson, sometimes I feel like he knows the 12th Doctor better than Stephen Moffat, which is ridiculous. But it feels that way sometimes. It seems like he knows them like they're his family. Oxygen. It's a base under siege story. And I love base under siege stories. The last base under siege story we got was, was the two-parter, right? Under the, under the lake, before the flood. Excellent story from series nine. The Oxygen doesn't have as much room to breathe and to develop. Because it was a two-parter. And, and this is not. But he writes the Twelfth Doctor with the understanding that we already know this character. He writes Nardole with the understanding that we already know Nardole. And here's the tricky part. He writes Bill as though we already know Bill. And we kind of know Bill. We're getting to know her. But it's five stories, this being the fifth. So how well do we really know Bill? And Matheson kind of touches at that. He does. He writes Bill in Oxygen in this episode. He writes Bill challenging what we think we know about her and what we think we know about the relationship between the doctor and her. And is she just a run-of-the-mill companion? Knock Knock, I said, was a generalized doctor story that you could put any doctor and any companion into. And you could do that with a lot of Doctor Who stories, but the really good ones, the classics, those are tailored to that specific doctor, that specific companion, and what is going on at that specific time in their journey. And that's exactly what Jamie Matheson did with Oxygen, moving the narrative for Series 10, not just for the story, for Series 10, while telling a great single story. 
So based on your siege, and we're challenged with what we know about the Doctor and Bill so far. And this theme of death, again, I'm not saying overdone, but oxygen, the way this story examines what death is in the Doctor Who universe compared to Knock Knock and their examination, oxygen does a far superior job. The idea of smart suits of our technology controlled remotely coming after us, trying to kill us. You know, that's uh, it's not too far off. There's a couple issues with this story, but nothing major. Some narrative device stuff that maybe could have been written a little bit better. It seems to me that Jamie Matheson often tailors his story to fit nicely with the series arc. And he does it flawlessly in Oxygen. I said that this story moves, propels the series long story forward. And it does, but it does in such a big way. In a way I've never seen. I appreciate you guys listening to That's Great Adric. Adric is, oh, he's sleeping. He's all tuckered out. I'm eating all those cookies. We're going to continue to make tweaks and tinker with the formula. We'll be back in two weeks with the second part of our examination of Series 7 of Classic Doctor Who with John Pertwee as the third doctor. In the meantime, find us at adric.actionpackedpodcasts.com there'll be a link in the show notes like us on Facebook I haven't really gotten our Facebook off and running yet but I'm on it Uh, you can find me on Twitter atchapatchsean that's A-T-T-A-C-H-A-P-A-T C-H-S-E-A-N you can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. And if you do, please, please leave a review. If you leave a review, the likelihood of this show getting new listeners jumps up. And I know, I know there are a lot, a lot of Doctor Who podcasts. I know there are. But most of them suck. They really do. A lot of them suck. This is just like a few people sitting around yelling at each other about how awesome fucking the Tenth Doctor is and how much they hate Clara and how much they hate how old they think Peter Capaldi is and, you know all that stuff there's some good ones out there there are Radio Free Scarrow Reality Bomb Reality Bomb is one of the best podcasts period Two Minute Time Lord was a very good document podcast no longer no longer around there's, there's good ones out there, but there's a lot of bad ones. And the only way to get that great adric separated from the bad ones is reviews. And obviously a lot of downloads, but you can't have a lot of downloads if you don't get your reviews. You can't get your reviews if you don't have any downloads. You're listening to this now. I beseech you, I beg you, please leave a review. And hit me up on Twitter. I gotta get Adric up because he's gonna get sick again. Thank you so much for listening. Adric, did you? Uh, he did. He just. That's just great, Adric. That's really, really, really.
your back.